You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience on this Friday, May 10th. It is our free-flowing Friday segment, and uh, we have a lot of loose ends to tie up at the end of the week. So I started just writing down a couple things that I forget to talk about throughout the course of the week, but um, I know you guys might want to hear more about it. And you know, for the future, you could email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com anytime. Feel free. I can't guarantee I'm always going to see it, but I try. I try my best. And uh, let me know if there's an issue, question you want addressed on a free-flowing Friday show, to the extent we have time for them. But wanted to... uh, We're going to go over a whole bunch of things. We'll start off with immigration. We'll go to some budget and spending issues in Congress, maybe come back to the courts and do a a deeper dive into immigration from the cartel perspective. But, you know, things have not gotten better. Despite all the noise from this administration, there are no signs that there will be a significant... um, Significant turn for for the better when it comes to the May numbers. We're already May 10th. We had record numbers, 109,000 apprehensions during April. And look, you know, the Border Patrol chief just announced that there are now more migrants in custody than we have border agents on the southern border. They further announced that... This week, Border Patrol had the highest single-day total of apprehensions for a single day, 5,200. 5,200 in one day. So in case you thought that we might be bending the trajectory, think again. You understand that 5,200, now we're not getting that every day, but I'm saying just to give you an idea, if you would get that on a daily basis, that would be an annual flow of about 1.9 million. So that's an astounding number. Furthermore, CBP in Arizona put out that they have, over the last seven days, apprehended three groups of 100 illegal aliens or more. Um, so it's continuing to heat up there. I'm going to try to contact Sheriff Wilmot from Yuma County to get get his pulse, but... Uh, they they said in the first half of fiscal year 2019, Border Patrol spent over $1 million on human, humanitarian costs for families. Food, diapers, clothes, baby formula, you name it. So our Border Patrol continues to be used for something that they're not supposed to be used for. Now, there's another interesting thing that caught my eye I wanted to address. And that is, there's an AP report that there's evidently 13,000 people waiting at the border to claim asylum. So, obviously, there's a whole number of people not waiting. 
you know, as we saw just in one day, we had 5,200 come in. Certainly in one week, we have more people just bust in anyway. But surprisingly, there are people waiting in Mexico. Approximately 13,000 people are on a waiting list to claim asylum in the U.S. So what I would, and, and, and they actually break down a map in about a dozen locations across the border. The most are in Tijuana. There's 4,800 people there. There are um, 4,500 in Juarez. 1,000 people across from Nogales. So basically the way it works is that each day at the points of entry, CBP officers communicate with the Mexican government and they work on how many they're going to bring in. So the question I had after seeing this, because this kind of surprised me, I didn't know this was going on, twofold. Number one, if you see that we're doing it in a more controlled fashion at the points of entry, so why aren't we requiring everyone else to do the same? Why aren't we returning them all to Mexico? That's number one. And number two, I'm glad that this is a little bit more controlled, but now that you see we have the power to tell these people, hey, you got to come to a point of entry and we're going to only allow a certain amount, well, why don't they set that amount to zero? I mean, <laughs> we know this is a fraud. We know we can't handle this even if there are a few legitimate asylees. Why don't we shut it down? I still don't understand that. I still don't understand why, in terms of the variables and the fixed, the fixed component is we must allow people in. The flexibility is on the American side, what American people have to suffer with and deal with. I don't understand that. To this day, I'm just not getting it. So that's the problem with the migration there. Just thought you should know that. Another interesting point is with diseases. You might have seen, it started in the Spanish language press, very few American media picked up on it. And it turns out Mexico near Tamaulipas, Mexican uh, federales picked up 289 of these migrants. Now, it's still unclear to me when they're apprehending them and when they're not because a boatload of them are coming over. So I'm still not sure what, what the game the Mexican government's playing. But 289, and they report that among them are those with chickenpox and measles. So remember, we've reported on obviously the TB, the mumps, many other diseases. Well, guess what? Now we have measles. Remember a while back, a couple weeks ago, CBP reported originally that a girl from Guatemala had measles and then they retracted it and we, you know, we called BS on that. Well, here you have it. Now, are we to believe that it just happens to be that only the one that the Mexican government picked up is the one with measles, but every other one that happened to come into America doesn't have it? That's BS. And we know according to CDC, 
there's a 90% chance of getting measles if someone even breathes that air and you show up at that location within three hours. That's how contagious it is. It is inconceivable that they're not bringing in measles. And, you know, what what I've started to do, and I'm going to have Joseph Humeyer, our Latin American advisor here, is putting me in touch with a researcher he knows who lives in Guatemala who's going to help me with Spanish language stuff because, frankly, that's where you could find it. I mean, those of you who have Spanish language skills that are far superior to mine, try this. Um, Look up measles and mumps in Spanish, okay? And, And you tell me what you see. Just do regular Google News. And you'll see a heck of a lot of it. Obviously, the, you know, mumps outbreak in, um, in uh in Honduras, so measles is is sarampion, and mumps is peperas. And you could see there's a heck of a you know they'll report on it. So those of you who are familiar with Mexican media, especially, they they'll report on it. The American media will black it out. So I was trying to just do a little bit of um. You know Google search. For, for some of this stuff. And it took the Spanish language media to clue me in not just what was going on there, but in America. It was amazing. So evidently, there was um, this was last week, uh, May 1st, there was a mumps out- case in w- Waslaco uh, School District in Hidalgo County, um, Texas which is probably the epicenter of the migration flow in the Rio Grande Valley. 15 cases of mumps have been confirmed in Hidalgo County. So now, to be fair, this is Fox Fox's local affiliate. Local media did pick up on it, but if you're, I mean, you know, you're a national guy, if you're not there, you're not going to see it. National media did not pick it up. That's a very big national story. That's the epicenter of the whole national flow. And I and I Googled around Spanish language media, and that's how I found this from Fox, South Texas. 15 cases of months have been confirmed in Hidalgo County, the most recent one at Waslaco High School. Health officials say more cases are expected. So um someone needs to find out about that. That's a big deal. We're hearing all in the media news about the outbreaks from the anti-vaxxers. And look, I'm not one of those. It's a problem. But not a word about what's coming in at the border. And again, I'll say it for the 50th time. Just for that reason alone, before we get into our discussion about how it's facilitating the worst national security cartel problems ever, but just on health grounds alone, they're inadmissible. Until you could verify that everyone has been vaccinated and is not a threat. And now we have confirmed the numbers. We know it's a problem. We have confirmed 
that since March 21st, CBP has directly released 33,000. Why do I say CBP? Because the rest are sent to ICE, and ICE released about 168,000 since December 21st. Now, the thing with ICE is that they are held there a little longer. Now, I'm still almost positive that there's not enough screening or vaccinations going on there. But what I am 100% certain is the ones that don't even make it to ICE that they directly release from Border Patrol are definitely not vaccinated, and they're released within a couple hours. So anyone who was exposed to measles, mumps, TB, you name it, you name it, they are, they might not be exhibiting signs, so no one's going to pick up on it. They're released. You're going to see it in these communities. You're going to see it eventually where they're bust, which could be anywhere. So we're going to keep an eye on this story. We're going to dog this issue until the media is forced to pick up on it. And, you know, it's important important to remember, very important to remember, that there's a lot of bad actors who control the populations in these countries. Joseph Humeyer tells me that the Russians have all these vaccination centers that are hooked in with the same division of, of Russian infrastructure with their biomilitary stuff. I mean, what's to stop them from launching biological warfare against America and injecting these people with this stuff? I wouldn't trust the Russian vaccination center there. I say this because, again, to this day, the American media and CDC is reporting about this mystery illness that came in, da-da-da-da, August 2014, right with the first flow of Central Americans, the outbreak of enterovirus D68, and then acute flaccid myelitis, AFM, which is this mysterious polio-like disease. Never had that before in this country. At least AFM we never had. We had a little bit of enterovirus years ago. Very little. But now, we've had so far 550 cases of AMF, 90% of them children, and roughly 1,400 cases of uh, enterovirus. You know, again, I'm looking into stuff at chikungunya. It's one of these um, uh, bacterias, not back, no, it's not a bacteria. It's um, one of these mosquito-borne viruses in Central America. It's all over the place. Big problem there as is dengue fever, um, Zika, similar thing, all these things. But, you know, Humeyer was telling me there were cases where people are dying of chikungunya recently, and usually you don't die from it. And again, you wonder if the, you know, the Russians are playing around with stuff. I don't know. This, that much is speculation, that the, the Russian angle of it. But, you know, you got you got to worry about that. But certainly, even if there is no insidious stuff going on, just the natural diseases coming over, we now know it's a problem. And we now know that the national media, certain extent local media, depending where, will do everything they can to cover it up. And that leads me to the next thing. 
There's been a, the biggest cover-up of all that no one's talking about is how the migration, as we reported on from day one over a year and a half ago, we were the first ones, that this is single-handedly causing the worst drug crisis in America. And when I say drug crisis, it's not just the 70,000 or so people dying a year from the drugs, which is bad enough, but I mean everything connected to that, which is a lot more than drugs. It's the cartel operations being allowed to get their people into America, allowed to prosper on all the revenue from the flow, allowed to use the flow as a strategic diversion, almost like a military-style operation, to get their people in, to get more of their transnational gang members who are contractors for them, to get them in like the Aztecas, Barrio, the Barrio Aztecas, operating in, uh, in, in the El Paso region. And all the sex slavery, the terrible things that are happening. So, I mean, it's obvious to anyone who has a brain that if you empty out the most impoverished people from these type of countries, we're going to have all sorts of, again, the diseases, the public charge, the problems of the schools. We know we're going to have that problem. But what is not being reported on, well, that's not being reported on either, um, it is just the cartel stuff. Which, again, aside from the fact that you could shut off migration from an immigration standpoint, and certainly from a health crisis standpoint. But this is not even immigration. It's cartel. I mean, this is the president's foreign policy, national security powers. So what happens when you have an 1,800% increase in migration in the El Paso sector? So it shuts down our resources. One of the biggest things going on, we're going to have a few-part series on this. One of the biggest things going on is the fact that we have shut down every single checkpoint in New Mexico. Well, every, every checkpoint in the El Paso sector which includes one checkpoint in El Paso County, Texas, and five in New Mexico. So there is not a single Border Patrol checkpoint that is up in New Mexico. I've confirmed that that much with CBP yesterday. Not a single one is up. They are all still down. I've spoken with a couple of local sheriffs, and I know we have some listeners in southeast or south-central southeast New Mexico. And... You have a travesty right now of rural conservative counties getting slammed with the effects of this because Las Cruces and Albuquerque and Santa Fe control the politics of the state. You have a wacko governor. I want want you to look at what's going on here. So you have the biggest migration going in through the El Paso region, which really, you know, Remember, the eastern part of New Mexico sits on top of that western panhandle of Texas where 
El Paso. So essentially, they're controlled by the El Paso dynamic. Places like Otero County, Lincoln County, the highways that go up there, 54, 70, Highway, highway, you know, um, highway 70, they have now become just cartel smuggling routes. The cartels just own New Mexico now. You have the invitation from the governor. You have Albuquerque City offering $250,000 to house migrants. So not only are they being housed in Las Cruces, they're being housed in Albuquerque now. And I don't know, some of you might have seen that story where there was this annual fair for children at the fairgrounds, this horse fair, and... It had to be canceled because they were kicked off the fairgrounds because now they're being used for illegals. So what's going on here, a lot of people don't appreciate is this. You have half of our Border Patrol resources diverted towards, you know, like you just saw, diapers, formula, managing catch and release. So they have a free reign to come in. If you're, I mean, think about it. Terrorists, transnational gangs, cartels, drug runners. We've never had such a threat. Meaning we've never had such few resources in these frontier areas in the modern era of the technology and resources of the cartels. You go back far enough, obviously we had a much smaller border patrol. But the cartels were also much smaller. So this asymmetrical warfare has never, we've never been in such danger before. So that's that's the first part. But a lot of people forget the multiplying factor exacerbating this of taking down the secondary checkpoints. A lot of people focus on the checkpoints in terms of B, of the second backstop to the points of entry. And, and in general, people are too focused on the points of entry. The points of entry are what they are. Yes, some of the resources have been diverted from the points of entry, but typically, whatever drugs they get in, they're going to get in. They put them in compartments, and they have the cartels, that is, have their own dog-sniffing units to preemptively try to check to see if they're dog-sniffing proof, and they get them in. And... If we're not going to catch it with the technology at the points of entry, it's very unlikely we're going to catch it at the checkpoints. What the checkpoints really are is not the second line of defense, but the first line of defense for what comes in between the points of entry. This is the dirty little secret. The dirty little secret is if you want to bring in mass quantities, I mean... Not to try to hide some stuff in a compartment that you could get around the points of entry, but massive stuff you have to bring in between the points of entry. My sources tell me that the cartels now know that it's now or never. Because again, the Trump administration is the worst kind of lukewarm hell half measures that we're talking about. On the one hand, it looks like they're about to get tough, but they're not really getting tough. So the cartels know that they have an unprecedented open lane, but on the other hand, it might only be for a short period of time. And they're just slamming in, they're crossing over, whether it's on foot, often in vehicle. Remember, that part of New Mexico, you don't have much fencing. 
So they get it in, but then there's the second half. They have all of their affiliates already in America pick it up. Now, remember we talked a lot about the bailouts, how they would have to bail out and circumvent checkpoints. Now they have a free ride up highways 54 and 70, look at a map, going through Almogordo, Otero and Lincoln counties. They have a free ride up those places. Free ride. So typically they had to either do bailouts, which were very risky. They had to do hike through the um, deserted Mesa and risk dying in the desert. Now they have a conveyor belt. They could take it in the cars straight up. So maybe they could cross it over on backpack. But then they have all their people, the contractors, the gangs, the cartel affiliates that contract with them that pick up all the stuff. And then they just, boom, bring it up the highways. And there's no checkpoints. That is the big problem. That is what's coming in between the points of entry that's much worse. And that's what the checkpoints being taken down is so devastating. It's why it's so devastating. And then remember, as we've always said from special agent in charge of DA at um, Atlanta, Robert Murphy, his point, people forget. The drug runners, the drug producers, the drug contractors all come in between the points of entry. Drugs don't transport, produce, sell, and bring back profits themselves. Those are all that is happening between points of entry and between the migration draining off the agents in these areas strategically orchestrated by the cartels and between the lack of checkpoints, we're getting slammed. Could you imagine the crime and drugs and gangs? We've we've documented. Some people believe our show should deserve a Pulitzer Prize for how the original, much smaller Central American flow in 2014 spawned the gang and drug crisis. Could you imagine what's going to come? This is what the sheriffs from Lincoln County and Otero County told me that they're concerned about. They're like, this is going to slam us. And, you know, the, the New York Post reported a little bit on this. I, I did some more reporting. Um, by the way, I wasn't trying to copy them. I was do I was literally contacting all these people before their piece came out. It's just I never, you know, got around to finishing it. We'll have this out next week. You guys get a sneak peek. In Otero County, Sheriff Mark Black has just a three-man narcotics team. Okay? Three-man nar- narcotics team. So they're not gonna catch much, but you could tell by the trajectory. In February, they seized thirty five hundred. Dollars worth of drugs in March, twenty three thousand, and in April, sixty one thousand seven hundred ninety. Obviously, there's millions of dollars worth coming through. That's all they could catch. But you see, you know, almost a twenty fold increase in two months. There, what changed? Well, the taking down of those checkpoints. Just on that account alone, forget about the migrants, what they are, aren't, bogus asylum, not bogus asylum. Just on that account alone, that's that's a matter of national security of utmost importance. And again, remember, I, I, I want to reiterate this. 
they've never had such a free lane where you could come in, have your contacts pick you up, and there's no second, there's no checkpoints. What the checkpoints are very apt at seeing, the, the agents there, is things that look suspicious. Human trafficking, not just the drug trafficking, but the human trafficking. You know, guys strike you as SIAs. Terrorists know this. This is a huge looming threat. Huge vulnerability. We've never never had anything like this. So I want you guys to know this is what's going on in um particularly in this area. The cartels are just slamming New Mexico. No checkpoints. I just don't get it. Why should that be sacrificed for catch and release? And I'm hearing the checkpoints are being used to process the catch and release of the migrants. So our resources that are supposed to be used as national defense are being used to undermine our sovereignty. And yeah, I mean, the cartels are just, it's a free ride. They don't even need the stash houses anymore. They just come bring it straight up now because they don't have to try to hide it. They know they won't get caught. So we're going to report a lot more on that. Maybe we'll have some officials from New Mexico on. But um, I really feel for those counties. They're really good people, good lawmen. By the way, whenever I talk to a sheriff, you know, hooked in with the National Sheriff's Association, we always inevitably inevitably just get into general crime and jailbreak. And and they all tell, tell me, like, are you kidding me? It's so hard to lock up anyone even on a state level. So many of them never get locked up, the worst of the worst. And you mean to tell me we're letting out people that graduate to the federal system? I feel very bad for these sheriffs. Good men trying to do the right thing. But they're crushed by not just the national politics, but that insane Governor Grisham there. And that's the whole thing. She pulled back the National Guard units. See, if you if you um at least sent the National Guard to at least relieve some of the Border Patrol, you could at least have the checkpoints back. But everything must be sacrificed for the gods of illegal immigration. There is nothing sacred. By the way, another loose point, just throwing a lot of loose things here. A while back, I sent in a request to ICE, and I totally forgot about it. They got back to me. Remember we, we talked about last week how um, in Afghanistan, so we you know spend a trillion dollars, lose uh, several thousand of our soldiers, 20,000 injured, so we could bring in 100,000 Afghani immigrants. But among them, we also brought in Afghanis to train on military bases. And they went. there were hundreds that went AWOL. So I put in a request to ICE, say, like, hey, did you guys apprehend them? So, you know, to her credit, um, and God bless her for getting back to me. I really appreciate it. She was very open about this. But she told me, as of February 21st, 2019, 228 international military students from Afghanistan have been identified as AWOL. 
Of those students, 132 voluntarily departed the U.S., meaning I guess we got them and then they voluntarily departed so that it wasn't official forced removal. 45 adjusted status or have pending applications to adjust status. And one returned to training. ICE arrested 38 students on immigration violations. 12 were removed from the U.S. 13 were entered into removal proceedings. Five voluntarily departed. And eight received an immigration benefit. ICE's Counterterrorism and Criminal Exploitation Unit continues to monitor the remaining 12 AWOL cases for future enforcement actions. So 12, it looks like 12 are still AWOL. So most of them have been caught. That's good news. But but notice that it's hard to see parse this out, but 45 plus 8. So roughly 53 have give, been given the opportunity to adjust their status. So wait a minute. They came here, went AWOL, and now we're giving them green cards? What, they're claiming asylum? I mean, yeah. Just just wanted you guys to know that. So that's the latest on the immigration front. We're going to have a lot more on that. But, but it just bothers me, just again, going back to the drug cartels, why is CBP's intelligence division, why is DA... Why is the FBI not yelping about this more? Why are they not putting out more information on the crisis of what the migration is causing in terms of national security, terrorism, drugs, gangs? Why? I mean, if you're DEA, this is the Super Bowl for you. Everything you've ever worked towards in your life, we've, you know, tried to do this and that in Mexico and South Latin America, and we just... Open our door to bring it in. So everything you're doing globally is worthless until this is stopped. But no one wants to risk their careers, so everyone's quiet. I am having a conversation today with the DEA special agent in charge of El Paso's office, so thankful for that. Thank you, Derek, for hooking me up with him. We'll see what happens there. Let you know if anything uh, earth shattering comes out of that, but um, very disappointing. Another another news story wanted you guys to know about May 9th. Um, this is from Alpha News Minnesota, Northeast Minneapolis man charged with stalking 11 year old girl. You know what Northeast Minneapolis is. Um, Muhammad Hassan Ali, 54, was following and touching the 11-year-old girl who appeared to be in distress and trying to get away from the suspect, according to the criminal complaint. The juvenile victim was walking a short distance from her home to a corner store nearby when she realized she was being closely followed by the suspect, who then grabbed the girl by the shoulder and neck area. So, um... This guy was booked in Hennepin County Jail on criminal sexual conduct and stalking charges. Bail was set at $30,000. So, um, I don't know if that guy's an alien or not. I mean, if he's 54 and he's in that part, it tells me he's a Somali, which means 
he definitely did immigrate here because he couldn't have been born here. They came in the early 90s, but could be by now he's a citizen, but that's neither here nor there. But, um, yep, real good, real good. So that is with immigration news we've had. There's a couple more immigration stories. If we have time, I'll get back to, but I want to move on here. So one thing I definitely want to get to on my list is the disaster bill today. Because I think this really brings out the essence of what is wrong with Congress. Really. They've declared about 60 different emergencies over the past year. But somehow this multi-layered effect, I mean, I cannot imagine anything else that is the impetus of more crime, drugs, national security threats, fiscal cost, health concern, then the, I mean, just, just the weakening of our national security deterrent. China, Russia, you can't even imagine what this is causing, as, as Colonel Steiner talked about last week. But no, we don't need any anything for that. Now, look, you and I both know that this is not so much a money issue. This is a policy problem, a court problem. But still, there's no emergency from Congress from their end to fix the loopholes. Not that I believe they need to be fixed because statute is statute. But, you know, if according to their own logic, to fix that, fix the judicial loophole. We do need more money for infrastructure no matter what at the border. We do need more money for ICE agents for deportations. We do need to deal with sanctuary cities. Now, obviously, Democrats aren't going to do that. But Senate Republican leadership, nothing. No sense of urgency. But they want to spend more money on disaster spending. Now, today the Democrats are passing their bill, their version out of the House, which Republicans will oppose, but you're going to see how Republicans agree to 95% of it, as is always the case. Always the case. So they're passing this... um, what do you call it? $17.3 billion disaster aid package. Now you might think, well, Daniel, there's been a lot of natural disasters. I mean, are you opposed to, to giving money for natural disasters? And then obviously you have the Puerto Rico spending. He, he, this is what people aren't understanding here. So first, before we get to the details, we'll get just the politics. So H.R. 2157, by the end of the day, the House will have passed this bill. I don't know what amendment votes, but if there are any important ones, we'll update you next week. Now, Republicans are balking at it, and Republicans, but Republicans passed a $13.5 billion bill, or tried to in the Senate, and Democrats felt it wasn't enough. They had $600 million earmarked for nutrition assistance for Puerto Rico, and it wasn't enough for Democrats, so they balked at it. But Shelby, who's the lead Republican, on appropriations, Richard Shelby from Alabama, yes, we have rhinos from Alabama, he is pushing this hard, and they badly want a deal to get done. They just want to save face. So they keep agreeing to more and more of what Democrats want to do. Typical negotiations, they're promising more funding for Puerto Rico, whatever they want. McConnell told reporters yesterday, 
We're open to additional Puerto Rico assistance. We need to pass it out of the Senate before Memorial Day recess. I mean, when do you ever hear him saying we need to deal with sanctuary cities before Memorial Day recess? We need to deal with the border before recess. No. But this, because it has the identity politics of Puerto Rico, oh boy, we can't look like we're racist. No, no, no. Okay. So that's what's motivating them. Now, look, many of us were concerned Trump wouldn't be a fiscal conservative, and in many issues he's not. But you know what? (laughs) To get a sense of how bad... GOP leaders in Congress are, he's more conservative than they are. And he's put his foot down. He said, I've had enough bailing out Puerto Rico. And he doesn't want to pass this. And he says, instead, we should be having passing a supplemental disaster aid for the border. The border is the disaster. Again, I don't agree with the priorities of, of what exactly he's funding there at the border. But the point being, the messaging is right. The real disaster is the border. But I just want to get a sense give you a sense of what Congress does with the double and triple dipping. Congress busted the budget caps by $150 billion. So all these agencies that are getting more money, HUD, Transportation, Department of Agriculture, they have record high budgets. Built in those budgets are accounts for these very aid programs. So what they do is on the regular appropriations, they run up the tab. But then... They, you have like a disaster, and they use that as an opportunity to say, hey, we need disaster funding. Even though that's embedded, that's why we have the base funding for that and record-based funding, but they start over again, so they double dip. On top of that, we've already passed over the last two years, last year, year and a half, since October and December of 2017, by my count... $117.5 billion in supplemental disaster spending. And then in each of the regular appropriation bills, we tacked on all sorts of extra stuff for that too. But I know from just two bills alone in 2017, $117.5 billion. It's never enough. The reality is you look at it, none of this is emergency stuff. It's not really the emergency of what's going on in Nebraska, which by the way, no one wants to talk about. We only talk about Puerto Rico. We'll never talk about Nebraska, where the flood is evidently worse than it was in 1993. By the way, just as a side point, why do you think there's a media blackout? I'll let you think about that a little bit. But anyway, you know, spending is now 13.7% higher than under Obama's final year. And yet it's never enough. Republicans agree to the fact that we should do this, but 2% less. So you look at what's going on, all of it is garbage. $3 billion for farmer for crop insurance. We just passed a $900 billion farm bill that covers shallow loss. It's like the Obamacare of agriculture. You know, like insurance covers everything in, in medical care now. So... You know, it covers everything. But they double and triple dip. The community community development block grant program out of HUD. It's nothing more than a wasteful welfare program for low-income housing assistance and other local parochial projects that long ago should have been shouldered by local governments. Has nothing to do with disasters. Long before disasters hit. But now's the time to run up the tab on that. 
And by the way, Congress already in the in the budget deal increased uh, CDBG grants by 88%. Even the Obama administration proposed cutting it because they said it lacked, quote, a focused impact, making the demonstration of the outcomes difficult to measure and evaluate. But hurricanes are always a time to expand that. Then, of course, there's the extension of the flood insurance program after they already bailed it out for $16 billion when they refused to fix it. That incentivizes people to build in flood, flood zones, thereby making it insolvent, thereby giving the government a monopoly over flood insurance. So it's a self-fulfilling thing that there's no, there's no other show in town I mean, where where are the statesmen? But no. So it's full of that. Then there's there's Puerto Rico. Now, it, it's a little bit tough because Trump tweeted out 90, we've already given the 91 billion. I don't know where he got that number from. It's 40 billion. But we've appropriated 40 billion dollars. In addition, we've had all sorts of backdoor financial bailouts for their $73 billion debt crisis. The reality is, to the extent that you're going to tell me they need even more money beyond the $40 billion because of Hurricane Maria, it's not because of Hurricane Maria. Hurricane Maria was terrible. Several thousand Puerto Ricans were killed. But in terms of just the economics, it's not fundamentally the hurricane. It's they've had Venezuelan-like Marxism there for years. That 26% of Puerto Ricans work for the government and receive 30 days of vacation occurred long before Hurricane Maria. That 43% of its residents received food stamps. 43% of its residents are on food stamps long before Hurricane Maria. The insane regulatory structure there, long before Hurricane Maria. That's just a reality. Sorry. But um, that is the reality. We've been plundered long enough subsidizing them. How do you throw more good money after bad money? Puerto Rico ranks dead last in terms of economic output compared to every other state within the U.S. boundaries. The gross state product, GSP, from 2003 to 2013 was negative 13.2%. I mean, there's just nothing to do business there. And then if you look at their minimum wage and their welfare, the thing is, like, because the standard of living is so much worse than in America, welfare is even more of a disincentive to work there than here. Because literally, you often make more out of not working. I mean, that's a recipe for a disaster. That, that's just what it is. And um, 
you know, they've had government corruption and big government promises forever. Since the 1940s, they have what's called um, the Government Development Bank. <laughs> it was created first as like a fiscal advisor, became the government's primary lending authority. And it's basically the island's public corporation. And they have housing subsidies. They have all sorts of stuff. Massive bureaucracy. That racked up. That government development bank pretty much racked up all their debt for them. And they have these public corporations. That's what they're called. They control healthcare. They control infrastructure, banking, real estate, transportation, electric, you name it. The largest of these public corporations is their um, electric company. I forgot what it's called. They hold $9 billion in debt alone. Out of their 72 or whatever billion debt. So, um, that's the issue there. It's the social socialism. And it's the wor- they're worse than any other country because... They have the inherent socialism, but on the other hand, they have the security blanket of America. And this is why the real answer is to give them their independence. You're not going to be encumbered by American regulations on your commerce, like the Jones Act, which you know really really hurts Puerto Rico in particular with imports and trade, um, the, raising the cost of shipping, almost doubling the cost to import things because of the Jones Act requirements but you know you're not going to have our security blanket either but no one wants to say that but that's ultimately what needs to happen i'm glad the president is standing strong on that hopefully you won't cave again the senate's not going to pass this version but they'll pass a slightly different version now that now the democrat version not only doesn't address the border crisis it actually explicitly bars the use of funding for a border wall now, the, the Republican version probably will not have that, but again, it's going to have all this pork and the Puerto Rico bailout, which is just nonsense. Y- y- you could give them another $500 billion. It's going to go into their corrupt public system. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. Someone's got to, you know, you, you, you got to move beyond the identity pol- politics and speak the truth. You're doing no one favors with this. So that's the story with that. We'll, we'll, we'll be watching that. But look, who would have thought the president would be more fiscally conservative than Republicans? And I hear a lot of people that criticize Trump, and I have my own criticisms of him, but they're like, oh, this guy's uh, taking the Republican Party away from fiscal conservatism. What fiscal conservatism? If anything, he's at least a little bit more um, fiscally conservative. Actually, as we're talking now, I'm recording now. It's it's the early afternoon. 34 Republicans broke with President Trump. So 34 House members voted for even this version. <laughs> even the Democrat version. 34 House members. That's how broken the system is. That's how broken the Republican Party is. You know how many fiscal conservatives there are left in the Republican Congress? About as many social conservatives. 
and about as many immigration conservatives, which is a few dozen. Ah, depressing, depressing. So that's with that. I wanted to tie up one loose end from yesterday's show. We talked about the courts and how we're all missing the point on how the entire role of the courts that we've given them is messed up. And you're not going to end it by saying, oh, Supreme Court, could you police them a little bit better or let's appoint better judges? I'm sure a lot of you have seen this by now. I did a quick article. I know we'll link to in show notes for the summary of it. But th- this was on Monday, a Virginia case, federal district judge Henry E. Hudson, a George W. Bush appointee, held that a common sense Virginia law that was on the book since 1975 is unconstitutional. What was the law? It said that only licensed physicians could perform abortions. Suddenly, 44 years later, a district judge, federal district judge, could come along and say, well, there's a federal right to abortion, so therefore anyone could... I mean, he didn't say who could perform it, but presumably anyone could perform it in the first trimester. He himself notes how there's a lot of... um, complications in the second uh, trimester, but somehow he is certain that first trimester, there's no problems. Government can't require that the guy who actually does the abortion be a licensed physician. And uh, therefore, they could, any random person that's a clinician could perform even the dilatory and evacuation procedure, which is the surgical procedure to cut up the baby, go inside there with the scissors and do the thing. Now, I just, just, just so you understand, like it amazes me how states are impotent. Now states cannot control the most basic regulations. If the, if the federal courts don't like it, but somehow states could block federal immigration law. That's besides the point. Think about, don't think about this from an abortion perspective for for a minute. Just think about it from a healthcare perspective. We are now told that not just the states, but even the federal government could regulate every aspect of healthcare, including medical insurance. Nothing to do with physical health. I mean, what you have to cover and the financial agreements, contracts. But a state can't regulate a dangerous forget forget about the morality. Let, let's just call it a surgery, right? Not not baby killing. Let's put baby killing aside. A surgery. This is a dangerous surgery. But we would in any other context, we would never say, "Hey, you have to allow a, um, I don't know. Let's just say a, a nurse to perform um an appendix surgery." We're not talking about heart transplants, but appendix surgery. No one would ever say that. No court would ever say a state can't regulate that. But a surgical abortion? That you don't have to be a licensed physician? But that's what happens when the court creates BS rights. They become greater than real rights. I mean, Second Amendment. Shall not be infringed, but everyone agrees. Like you could regulate machine guns, you could say it would be the equivalent. Can you imagine a state saying, 
Um, can you imagine a judge saying that because it says shall not be infringed, and this is in the Constitution, you cannot require someone to be a licensed firearm dealer to deal, sell, do other things with, with firearms? Meaning, even if it would say in the Constitution, the right to an abortion shall not be infringed, right? Still, you couldn't, no one would ever, I mean, logic would dictate that a state could put a healthcare regulation and govern the care of the facilities, the qualifications of the facilities, the qualifications of the doctors. But every one of these things now, the Gosnell laws, they're all, all the courts are coming in there. And again, the, the the other important lesson here is what when I talk about the one-directional ratchet, how you could always be more progressive than Supreme Court precedent because Supreme Court precedent in itself violates previous Supreme Court precedent. Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the landmark abortion opinion, 1992. Everyone knows that for kind of reaffirming Roe, but at the same time, it also clearly upheld a lot of state restrictions on, on abortions. And one of them was, you know, part of the Pennsylvania law was um what was uh even much stronger than the Virginia law. It required license only licensed physicians only even to just give counsel and information on abortions, not just actually performing the abortion. And, you know, the the Supreme Court said very clearly it was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, big abortionist, writing the the plurality opinion. Our cases reflect the fact that the Constitution gives the states broad latitude to decide that particular functions may be performed only by licensed professionals, even if an objective assessment might suggest that those same tasks could be performed by others. But, you know, that is within a state's prerogative. It's straight up in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But any district judge, any time could do what they want. This is what they don't understand. You can never win such a game like this. No one in the legal profession is going to banish this guy and disbar the guy for violating case because they don't consider it a violation. You're just being progressive. You're being you're moving forward. You could always be more liberal. You can't win a game like that. And then there's the other lesson to learn from this case, which is it's another Republican appointee. So a lot of these people are like, Daniel, we're on the cusp of flipping the third and second circuits. No, you're not, because you're counting our appointees and de-appointees, but you're missing the fact that 100% of the de-appointees are radical beyond belief, and half the Republican appointees are nutcases, so they have a supermajority. And then even a lot of the good ones, including Trump appointees, they might not render opinions like this, but they're not going to be an equal and opposing force doing for conservatives reversing as much as these guys are advancing. They're just not going to do that. They don't do that. Can you imagine? I mean, if you have a Republican like going up against the other direction, a leniency on abortion that's pl- plainly spelled out in Roe or Casey and a, as a lower court judge, they're, they're just not going to do it. And you guys know already Roberts and Kavanaugh and who knows how many others, even on the Supreme Court, aren't going to do it. 
Thomas is the only one we know for sure. This is the big lie about this mindset that the judiciary is supreme and they could just strike down laws yet somehow we'll get better people to do the striking the balls and strikes it's made up once you agree to that premise you lose and that's the same thing here judges can't control regulations Now, what a judge could theoretically do is if you want to convict a doctor for performing a certain abortion or a non-doctor for for, for performing something that he wasn't licensed to do. So, yes, to convict that guy That's ultimately the province of the judiciary. And if they want, they could say, look, our branch of government says for our purposes, this is not a violation of law, so we're not going to convict the guy. But that doesn't mean that the law is struck down. That doesn't mean that as a political rule, the state can't keep regulating it. And we're going to say, we're going to keep saying, you have to be licensed. And there's a lot of ways you could gum up the works. You could push back. For example, we're not going to give funding to any facilities, state funding to any facilities where they're not licensed. So a court, this is the the difference when you understand a court doesn't strike down. If a court had a power to strike down, so then they strike it down. The law is, no, the law is not in play. But here, all they're doing is saying, okay, you Joe Schmo, I'm not going to convict you if you perform it if you're only a a nurse or some other clinician or a layman or whoever, but that you're entitled to state funding, courts don't control that. And they could find other ways to kind of intimidate them because you're still violating the law. They can make you ineligible for certain state jobs or certain things. There's a lot of things that the executive and legislative branches are very powerful and and, and they they can't strike that down. You can't not give them funding. You can't. No, we can do whatever we want. To criminally prosecute the guy and lock them in jail and convict them for doing it, that already is, you know, that is the job of the judiciary. So that's what I'm saying. It's not just that, you know, we have the obligation to push back against the courts where they get it wrong. But they don't even have the power, they don't have dominion over a lot of the aspects, the political rules, as Lincoln said, that would give teeth to this stuff to their rulings. Just like they could try to take the teeth out of executive and legislative branch policies by saying we're not going to lock people up and convict them for certain things, we could take teeth out of what they're trying to do with their rulings by saying, no, we're not going to give money to this and we're, we're going to still enforce this where we can. I'm saying that's not even not listening. Not listening to a court would be, you know, the state police come in and throw the guy in jail and lock him up anyway. This is just straight up. We're just doing our thing. You're doing your thing. Anyway, a lot, lot of immigration observations I didn't get to. I want to talk a little bit about more about the Alabama Senate race with 
um, Arnold Mooney. Some of you are asking me questions. We'll get to that next week. Let me know what else you want to be a, a, want addressed on our free flowing Fridays um, or any time we could do free flowing. Um, hope you enjoyed this week's programming or you know content this week. We always seek to please here. Have a terrific Mother's Day family time. I know I will as well. We'll do it all again. Same time, same place next Monday. God bless you all. Have a great weekend.